0: Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week on the podcast, I spoke with Gerard Kraushier, the CTO and co founder of Captain AI, a company based in the Netherlands working on autonomous shipping out of the busy Rotterdam port. We discussed the unique problems that come with building autonomous vehicles, the extent to which the latest and greatest research informs their work, their production stack, and how they handle deployment for their particular setup. As always, please let us know if you have guests you'd like me to speak to by sending a message to us on Slack or by emailing podcast at zenml.io.
1: So my background is actually in marine science. Um, so uh, I went to the University of Hawaii, um, and I, I just uh, love the ocean, I love the nature. And, and uh, before I went there, I, I, I was more involved with, uh, let's say, I was thinking I was going to do some genetics or something like that. I wanted to get into something that's cutting edge and something new, but I didn't want to be in the lab all day. So I really liked, uh, it kind of got this passion for the waters and the seas, uh, kind of throughout my whole life. I've been somehow involved with beaches, uh, diving, snorkeling oceans. So, so I had this already had this love for the oceans. Um, and then uh, I also had, together with that, um, love for, for science and technology. I, my whole life I've been taking things apart, trying to build things. Um, you know, uh, I always just had a, had a curiosity. I just wanted, I, I enjoyed putting things together to solve problems. Uh, and so as I started going through school, you know, you're kind of trying to figure out what you're doing with your life and what you, uh, you want to do um i kind of merged all the things that i liked together um, and started pursuing things like with underwater robotics uh I really got into manufacturing at that time i think uh you know like uh developing became more accessible with 3d printers and uh, laser cutters and all these things and uh, i really i started loving these machines started loving how easily you can make things and that you know so i started building rovs uh, in university and then after that i uh, graduated well, worked a bit more in in uh, product development uh, at Origin Base was also kind of like a startup. Uh, we wanted to help people prototype and develop, uh, and so I had a lot of experience building projects uh, essentially for people. And so uh, that gives you that exercise of here is um, a goal, here is a product that you have to, to develop, and usually it's not something that you can just buy; it would be custom. And then you have to set out a timeline uh, and. And iterating through that cycle, I think, made me really um, kind of understand how projects should be put together. And so at one point, uh, I, I went to at one point, I just decided um, after a few few job, another job, I just decided I'm going to start my own company. I've done this for other people. Why can't I just do this for myself? And so I started doing this uh, building, this underwater uh, vehicle, which was designed for scuba divers. Uh, which you could use to map the reefs using um, cameras, because sonar technology is, is really expensive. Uh, and if the waters are clear, you can use uh, two cameras. You can do, uh, you know, stereoscopic. Uh, you can just use get depth images out of two cameras and get a, an idea of what the 3D environment would look like. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I can. We could kind of create a backup of the reefs. What that would look like create a 3d model and then over you know the years you can kind of see how the reefs change uh i I really like i I had this like idea of like uh really being a lot more precise in quantitative analysis uh in marine science because i i felt like that was lacking Uh, i never really thought of like the, the the financial impact on those things um, so, yeah, once, once you have to address a business case and a need, um, the, the game changes a bit. And at that time, uh, I was in the UAE, um, and I had uh, found someone who was willing to, to invest in this idea. It gave me a little bit of capital, a little bit of resources. Uh, and then I really started learning what it takes to, to, to start a company. I was doing all of this by myself. Uh, I was naive enough to think I could build, design, program uh, deploy and sell all of this mm-hmm. by myself. Uh, I quickly <laughs> learned that, that is, uh, it's, it's unrealistic. And, uh, and so when I came to the Netherlands, I, I was also thinking of continuing and pursuing. Uh, I kind of came to the Netherlands as a fallback plan uh, because I, I, I'm actually a Dutch citizen um, and Uh, and to, and I, and I didn't have a visa anymore in the UAE unless you have like a job or something like that. And at the time i quit my job to start this startup, you, you needed a visa. Uh, and so I just came to the Netherlands, uh, and first thing I did was try to find a place where I could establish myself, you know, find, uh, the equipment that I need, uh, and, and try to do it here, uh, try to start my thing here. Uh, and so the first person I messaged was Vincent, literally the first person I messaged, um, in the Netherlands was Vincent. And, uh, uh, he's like, uh, well, you know, h- how do you like, um, and Id- I like, I've been having this idea. How about we, we, build something together. We, we, uh, we try to figure out how to solve autonomous shipping. And so, so he came up with this idea. Um, I can't remember if it, that was already at the email, but essentially I remember arriving in Holland and the next day, having a, a, a meeting with him. And from there, uh, Pretty much one thing led to another and started Captain AI. And this was maybe, I think, four years ago or something like that.
0: Mm. Um, well. So that, that story is kind of interesting because, um, uh, or at least I'm, I, I'm not sure, like, the extent to which people normally come into this world from the software and kind of education, that, that side of things versus someone who wants to build things. Like, um, is that something you've come come across a lot? It's a huge um, thing that
1: takes up a lot of occupies a lot of my my thoughts um, for sure. Because every everyone I'm working with is, is very academic, uh, you know. They've got a huge academic background, uh, and I'm am a little bit of an outlier in that sense. Um, I uh, I always uh, build things out of um, a need to solve a problem, and uh, never formally. I would say, you know, I never. Um, I, I I guess I just I just never thought of of. Like one, one thing is that early on, I remember thinking that, uh, I generally, the things I, I, I learn at school are things that I fall out of love with in a sense. And I was scared that I would fall out of love with making things. Um, although I, I did love the sciences and the physics and, and I, I took way too many classes that were unnecessary, um, in those, in those fields. Um, but, uh. But yeah, I think uh, in a sense I was a little bit scared of of um, you know losing that 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 passion I have for for just taking things apart or being very pra- practical about it. You know, um, you know what does it take to do this? And I think that's what I got really good at. Is like w- what I feel like is my skill now is like I get into like I'm good at addressing things I don't know anything about. Um, so that's what happened with uh, deep learning, maybe three or four years ago. Um, I started uh, seeing the potentials because I, I was using OpenCV for prototyping a lot and, and all of these more classical solutions. And then I started seeing a trend where uh, you could do these detection solutions and they weren't using OpenCV or anything like that. Uh, and they were just using like new ways of, of, of writing tensors. And um, and I started seeing the solutions on that and I'm like, okay, well, this really seems like uh s- seems like this is how you're going to solve a lot of your problems. Um, soon so i I took some online courses and played around Jupyter notebooks type things um, you know and and tried to uh, try to skill up in that sense um, and um, yeah I, I think uh, a lot of the stuff uh, that needs solving for like let's say radar detection or or 3d bounding box detection very deep learning based makes makes deep learning makes a lot of sense for these
0: things yeah. um how do you uh... Is there any transfer, or how do you see the transfer between, like, that world of building physical things and building, I don't know, cathedrals in your mind, software, let's say? Like, is there any like lessons you you have you've brought to bear from your previous experience? Uh, yeah, I think there's still many lessons to 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 learn,
1: um, but that's indeed. Um, I, I I've discovered that I'm idealistic uh, and that I am very. Um, I always assume. Like the, I'm very, a little bit naive and assume, um, assume great things can happen. I think I'm, and I don't really think it's, uh, I don't want to get too philosophical here. Um, I don't really think it's uh, necessarily a bad thing in my mind. I think when you're developing something, you tend to be biased towards uh, the things that can go wrong. Uh, So like you tend to weigh out, okay, well, what are all the failure modes? How do we address them? But you don't really uh, counterweight all of the success modes and all of the, you know, potential avenues a solution can take. And so I think generally when someone makes a choice in the development process, they tend to average it out towards more like the negative side of things. Uh, And when you want to do something new and creative, you can't really base it on past experience. I don't know if I'm getting a little bit too vague here. Um, You kind of have to. uh, So so. Because you're doing something new, you have you can't really just use history as a function to determine what the new thing is. Uh, there's some element of risk always going to be involved, and and how you handle that risk uh, becomes a craft um, or an art. I don't think I don't think there's a solution uh, that you could just follow in the deployment or development of a new idea. Uh, there's a lot of lessons that you can learn. There's a lot of uh, wisdom that can be bestowed by other people who've gone through the same process, but there is no formula in creating something completely new. Uh, and I, th- I think uh, until now, as far as I know, it's still an art. It's still something you have to uh, you have to run simulations in your mind of all the different scenarios, potential outcomes, the potential value. And it's a very difficult problem. It's, 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 it's really difficult, I think. Um, but it's also really exciting. So, yeah
0: and yeah i imagine uh, a little bit later maybe we'll talk a little about um kind of iteration and how that fits into it particularly in the in the world that you're 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 working in um but yeah perhaps now is a good place to talk about captain ai what what it is you you do what's what's the problem you're solving
1: yeah so uh there's there's what i tell um uh, pe- people in the near term, and then there's like that long-term vision that really is what drives everyone, I think. Uh, and I think the long-term vision for everyone and the employees is to really do something that is um, is, is 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 exciting and new, uh, and and more in the domain of like actually making something navigate by itself. It's 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 in a sense it's very profound because we take it for granted. We we tend to walk around and do everything every day. Autonomously, uh, but embodying that into something that moves around uh, in the real world by itself is um, is it's a it's a it's a challenge, uh, but it's also a very profound challenge, I think. And also on top of that, to do that on water, which seventy percent of our planet is water, it's the vehicle for this planet, and to be able to add some level of autonomy, I think, and that would be great in the future. I believe you could. Do a lot of really great things if the oceans were more accessible. You know, humans are not designed for the oceans. So I think if we can make it more accessible through simplifying the access to oceans by means of like maybe you want to survey certain types of parts of the oceans so you can just send out, you know, your own eyes and ears and remotely see what's going on. Uh, I think there's a lot of things still to be discovered in the oceans. So from like a sensor side, a perceptive side, it's interesting, but also from a logistics standpoint. So what is it? I think 60% of the volume and 40% of the value of cargo is transported through seas. Don't quote me on that. It's, It's something like that where the masses of things that get transported is done overseas. And if we can offset a lot of the logistic problems onto oceans, it's a lot more efficient. Each cargo vessel has, you know, Hundreds of containers and a small staff to actually service that. So, if we can offload all of that stuff that essentially gets transported by trucks nowadays or by cargo by airplanes, then that means that we have less congestion on the roads. We have, it's probably even safer. I mean, I don't know how many car accidents are done by truckers that are driving excessive amounts of time. So, I, I think it's just a, a better way to solve problems. Uh, And and we discussed this a lot because the direct value proposition is kind of a hard one to address from that angle. But then we do have like the near term visions um, that that is what we're working on, which has more practical business senses in the short term.
0: Right. Yeah, I I was even even as you were saying, you know, solve the problem of of like uh, autonomous transport or autonomous travel or something. You say that was even wondering whether there's even a, a broader way of thinking about it you know i don't know at some point space travel is going to be more of a thing right and you know some kind of autonomous like travel is, is also going to be a thing there as yeah well. i
1: think uh, our whole team we're, we're all we all love space and space travel i don't know if it, it's because we grew up watching you know sci-fi movies or something like that um but we're, we're definitely uh, fans of it and uh and uh, in principle, a lot of stuff we're working on um, should be able to be translatable into, you know, uh, solving uh, navigational problems in, in other domains, right? Right. Uh, and that's definitely something that From we really think about it. But you know, I'm
0: um, yeah. um, I'm curious. Like, so you know, we hear often about the. The difficulties and the kind of the, the way it's been overestimated, the ease the ease of solving the kind of autonomous driving thing um, has, has, has often been uh, exaggerated or given these really like um, ambitious estimates. Like, wh- what's the difference between auto- the difficulties or the scenarios around autonomous driving and the maritime uses?
1: Um, yeah, I think uh, I think. The maritime is a bit slower moving in, uh, industry-wise. It's it's interesting. Maybe that's not the case because radar has predominantly been on vehicles way longer than it has been on cars. And there's been a lot more automation in the infrastructure side of things. But the maritime industry is very, very, uh, very old, uh, has very old standards. And, and I think what the issue is, is that because vessels uh, require a huge uh, investment to build, mm-hmm. uh, they generally last for a very long time. Uh, and so you don't get that, iteration cycle of like, let's build a new vessel, like you see with cars that they're building new cars every 10 years, right? Um, And so, so most vessels that you see out there are already 30 years old. Uh, So you're talking more about the retrofits uh, type of thing. So every five years, more or less, they get updated with new equipment uh and so they want to modernize and they want to have new features and excessive access to internet uh, better logistics and so that is, the game is a bit different in that sense um there's a lot of disadvantages and advantages in the sensor suite and uh there's also kind of differences in in the in the media so uh, so like cars are traveling uh through a road um and that has a specific set of challenges and and we're traveling through water, which has a different set of challenges and um, which are both good and bad. Uh, And, uh, but I think, I think the problem that we have is very, very interesting. Um, One thing that I think we have, uh, that is like amazing is we have a huge source of historical data. Um, If so, only it's only recently that you know you see Waymo or I don't know if you're familiar with it. Well, these car car companies, Waymo, uh, Tesla, Cruise—they're collecting data now, right? Uh, and so they have GPSs and a bunch of sensors on all the cars, and they're collecting that information. And then they're using that to kind of extract, uh, you know, predictions of, of routes, uh, maybe help in situational awareness for detection, um, and do all these fancy detection uh, solutions. But in the maritime industry, they've been collecting uh, AIS, uh, which is uh, they've been collecting positional information of ships for a very long time. Uh, so they've been, so a lot of the vessels, and it's actually required in the ports uh, by law, uh, have a, uh, a GPS and they need to broadcast uh, that GPS as to be able to show their position to another vessel uh, and then visualize that on a screen. Uh, they also use it for vessel traffic management systems, so VTS, where you would have someone who's a port operator would look at the vessels that come in and they would have this uh, software, which would look at essentially AIS, plotted it on, on their uh, screens, and then they can kind of get a good idea of, of where b- vessels are going. And that's a little bit more interesting because vessels are huge. You really want to keep track of them. You really don't want to have crashes with those. Uh, so there's been a bit... Uh, bigger effort uh, to to kind of broadcast their position. And so we have access to this data, which we can use in a similar fashion, only we have access of this data for years. automotive industry only has it for a couple of years, but we really, you could get, if you really wanted to, you could get like 10 years of dense historical rate, uh, AIS data from almost all over the world. Uh, and so um, at Captain I, uh, this is one of the uh, directions that we've taken, uh, which I think... Uh, if you were really coming from first principles kind of solving the autonomy problem, uh, you don't just copy-paste what other people do. You look at the resources that are available to you, and I think this this resource uh, is paramount to, to being able to understand the way vessels behave, to be able to suggest routes uh, which uh, vessels could take uh, and solve a lot of the uh, problems you would need to in your autonomy stack. Is
0: Is that enough? Because, I mean, basically what you're talking about is just plotting like where a vessel is on the map like presumably you want the rest of the stuff as well like the other sensors that you have maybe maybe I'm misjudging like how you how you use this data
1: Yeah no it's it's true so AIS has a lot of failure points primarily that the fact that a human needs to um do the settings on it and uh, so what AIS captures is GPS location uh but it also tells you the dimensions of the ship uh, so you know how wide it is, how long it is. Uh, it tells you that. And then every the interval of, of AIS is quite sparse. Maybe uh, every few seconds, uh, three, four seconds, I can't really remember. But it can be kind of, um, it, can, it, it, it. you see them jump. And so uh, another issue is that a lot of vessels just switch off their AIS. Like there are vessels that are navigating that don't even have AIS. And so... Right. Uh, what we're actually using for uh, from AIS is uh, right now, we're solving our route planner with it. So we're just creating a graph from all of the historical data. These are, this is the direction and the way that vessels drove. This might be an interesting way for you to navigate to. And so we we suggest that route. Um, but what we are actually doing also is, is we're using AIS as a template for pre-labeling. And this is where it gets really interesting with deep learning. Uh, pre-labeling our radar data and pre-labeling our camera data. Uh, So what we do is is we, in retrospect, so looking back, we collect the data, we interpolate that data, uh, and then we, so at the moment that the radar was sweeping uh, at that specific place, uh, we know exactly where um, the box should fit around a blob. Uh, And so we pre-label all our radar data, which means that when it comes down to adjusting those labels with human labelers their workload uh, is is substantially smaller so so right now we're estimating that 50% of the work is actually being handled uh in some cases even more uh just through the pre-labeling process uh, and we're looking to extend this uh pre-labels into the, the camera domain too so if you have a camera that is uh, looking at a certain angle you, you can actually project or you can you can do the the operations to be able to translate uh, where you see a box, um, you know, from a bird's eye view type of view to uh, the view that a camera has. Uh, and and that should be able to, to pre-label a lot of our data sets. Uh, and we're doing this as an alternative to using, let's say, LIDAR to label things and things like that. Uh, and, and this is... You would be able to generate way more data, uh, putting a lighter on vessels for data collection is not going to be practical. And like what you hear from Andre Karpathy and, and uh, some other uh, ML kind of uh, uh, experts that do this at scale, um, they tend to say, invest in your pipeline. It's, you're not going to get one data set and be done with it. It's something you're going to be doing uh, throughout your company lifetime. Uh, and so we want, we're really focused on these kind of more practical solutions, you, use the data that's available to us to be able to generate models. Uh, and so that's the approach that, that, that we're taking right now. Um,
0: so when I think of kind of how how you would go about solving this, I imagine there's like a decent amount of reinforcement learning in there, maybe a bunch of simulation, maybe some synthetic data, like, is there, is there anything kind of, big that's missing
1: there uh we we've touched on all those subjects um so uh there's kind of like um we envision the solution to be somewhere at a, at a times and they'll actually include a lot of what you just mentioned um but i think for practical reasons and to be able to survive as a startup you need to have short-term girls goals with a really realistic um milestones and uh, I mean I mean like the ambitious future goal I, I would imagine is some kind of multimodal sensor neural network that uh, can predict things and then you have some RL algorithm that that kind of simulates these predictions and tries to they negotiate with each other to, to figure out what the optimal path should be and how to, mm-hmm. to navigate and solve a lot of these problems but that's very experimental like these kind of things are, are very very experimental so right now what we're doing is we're trying to validate the facets we're taking uh let's say we want to know if we can detect uh really well um objects using deep learning with radar if we can do the same with camera we, we try to optimize these models once uh use classic techniques for fusing them uh, and once we have a level of maturity in that uh, and maybe even some more resources we'll look at doing something more fancy like that modal, multimodal uh, approach um, you mentioned uh rl or simulator training so we used a simulator. Um, we did a test uh, because data camera data is really difficult to get, uh, and and before we started implementing this this labeling technique with AIS, we were trying to figure out how do we generate data. And of course, lidar is, is not practical and not scalable. So uh, one approach was to use um, it was to use. Uh, Sorry, the simulator. Uh, so we have access to a high-fidelity maritime simulator from a company called VSTEP. They're one of our investors, actually. Uh, the, the simulator is called Nautis. And we actually just programmed it so that we can see vessels from different orientations and, and teach a neural network to learn uh, orientation. And so we generated, I think, about 70,000 uh, synthetic data uh, images uh, with with these labels and, and got to like 63 70% uh, uh, Improvements, still state of the art, um, and we're hoping that with this real data uh, that we'll, we'll generate, we're really going to get to um, to the type of performance you see with bounding box detection, like really nice. Um,
0: yeah, can you can you run the simula- simulator at like non real time speeds or, or at like? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so,
1: so yeah it's because uh, if you're doing RL, we looked at RL um, and trying to do on policy training in the sim. Um, and so, uh, we, we can manage to speed it up 10 X with the physics, but then the physics starts breaking down a bit. Um, uh, so we actually, uh, looked into lower fidelity simulations and things like that. Uh, and then, um, looked at lens networks. Can we transfer that lower fidelity into a higher uh, fidelity train on the higher fidelity and translate it into the real world? Uh, and that was, uh, that was something we looked into, um, a few years ago, um, but I, I, I think that RL uh, in terms of learning in, on policy in a sim, is not the way to go. Um, not anymore. Um, I, think, I think you see a lot of things that they kind of simulate. Um, you, you can create a simulator without even having to program you know, uh, all of the visuals in it and, and to do all these rule-based, mm-hmm. because that's a lot of work. But right. with deep learning, you can, you can create these prediction models and say, okay, well, if I saw this boat here and I saw that boat there, the boat will be over there. Uh, and you can capture these interactions. So we've looked at, at doing prediction models, um, just using positional data. Uh, and we have access to a little bit higher fidelity than just AIS. So we, f- we have AIS we fused with radar. And so we can track the positions create, let's say, a neural network that predicts that motion and uh, and what you can imagine is is that you could now do on policy training with your pre- predictions. And so you have a simulator which is learned on the real world that can kind of tell you this is how things will go and then you can create an on policy uh training with RL um using that type of simulator. And I think that that that's, that flavor of approach is probably more realistic.
0: Yeah. Um I'm curious so like obviously I mean reinforcement learning is 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 no longer kind of cutting edge or something particularly new like lots of people have have some exposure to it at least but like where where where's the intersection between kind of the ongoing research which is being done in in this world and and what you're busy with uh
1: yeah so i think if you there there's, there's solutions out there that are phenomenal um like uh i i just i'm really getting excited especially this year Um, You know, like what what we see with GPT-3 that really shows um, like the prediction capabilities, just like what happens if you just predict and the fact that you can do more than just predict, uh, you know, you find all of these alternate use cases for it, which is really interesting to explore. Um, I also think that uh, with Nerf, I don't know if if you followed uh, with with Nerf, uh, so... Nerf is a way to visualize using neural networks. So back in the day, we used to do something called SLAM or something we would, uh, you know, it it would be called photogrammetry. You take a lot of pictures, um, and it's still photogrammetry to a certain extent. Take a lot of pictures of an area, and then you use properties like features of that property of those pictures and knowledge of the positions to be able to reconstruct a 3D model of it. But now with Nerf, they've shown that you can change you can rephrase that problem into uh, instead of trying to do that why don't we just teach the neural network to render at a given uh, location and now you give the input data of their positions and you essentially uh, use radiant fields uh, i believe to render what a view would look like so now you're like that changes this is like fundamental paradigm shift in the way that you would actually visualize things now you don't need uh, you know, ray tracing or or these engines, like things are, you know, there's another way to do this now. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, th- those kind of things are more on the cutting edge side. And I, I feel like that's the direction we should go into. But we're also a startup in the maritime industry, which is a slow moving industry. Uh, so you have these, these contrasts where you know, which technologies are really promising, very experimental, but, but you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, the possibilities. Uh, And then you have to bring it down to the practical cases. Well, you know that these models, you know, like bounding box detection type of models, um, single shot detectors or whatever, they're kind of more practical. Uh, You know, they've been really well vetted, huge data sets for them. You know, you're going to get a solution out of that. Um, And so it's a luxury to be able to experiment uh, in a more sophisticated domain. Uh, And I really hope that... uh, as we grow as a company, we we get access to to spending more time in in researching those fields because I think the returns are will be huge. Um, I, I think it's it's just uh, a very exciting time to really explore those technologies, and I'm sure there's going to be so much value, uh, you know, business value in, in them too.
0: Yeah. Um, if we move shift a little bit towards thinking about like just how. Um, uh, how i guess you you deploy what you're doing on kind of out in the real world like how how does that deployment and kind of real world piece piece like shift about you know how how you go about things
1: yeah so in the deployment um that's something we're we're currently like facing so i think uh it's very straightforward if 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 you kind of deploy something in the form of a docker uh container right uh, internally, it kind of makes sense. We've been building a lot of the things uh, separately. And so like, if you're, let's say, working on radar detection and you want to improve your model, you want to keep iterating that. But it, radar doesn't work by itself. It has to interface with different modules ultimately to give a good perception sense for the autopilot. Uh, and so we've been using Docker to solve that problem of that modularity. and And with that comes the versioning. And so you get different solutions like uh, Torch serve or TensorFlow serving those kind of solutions that uh, you essentially just pull um, a container which is ready for serving a model uh, and, and you just modify the, the infrastructure so that it can handle the type of model that you're trying to do inferencing on and then all of a sudden you can already do uh, inferencing from multiple different um, computers if you want. Uh, and it'll handle that really nicely. It'll make use of the hardware nicely. Uh, so so that's essentially how we do the deployment part of it. Uh, of course, we've you've, you've got solutions that deploy uh, containers remotely, uh, which is interesting, too. Uh, and then... But really, all the way to that point, it's probably like, that's just like the icing on the cake, right? That's like the tip of the iceberg. Uh, You still have to, the whole data acquisition pipeline, labeling pipeline, um, you know, model validation. There's so much stuff you have to do before you can even deploy this model. Um, And and so we've been doing it probably the hard way because we've been doing this uh, more or less, without the existence of a lot of this what, what is available nowadays yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah I'm curious like I mean as much as you can share like like what does that stack look like what does what does the workflow look like kind of on, on that kind of end-to-end um, scale
1: yeah uh, so the goal is that what you're saying and like complete end to end so data acquisition to the data model training and validation and then deployment uh, and I think like the way we envision it is that in the future you'll probably have a tight cycle. On, on these things where you're, you're acquiring data from the vessels, you're training it, you're updating it for different locations, you know, things change, so you, you want to be robust to that. Uh, and so with that in mind, we have been building, um, let's say, rigs, uh, ways to collect data uh, on vessels. Uh, right now, we store them on hard drives because the amount of data that we collect is impractical to send. It's not really practical to send over. Like, I can just I can just drive over to the vessel grab a terabyte of hard drive which would take quite a while to just transfer um so we just and 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 hard drives are pretty cheap nowadays so you can just put a couple of terabytes in it and collect data um you also want to be smart about how you collect that data because you you know if you have terabytes of data you have to comb through all that data uh, so maybe so maybe you want to be smart about when you're collecting it so we have like uh stuff set in place like uh that say okay only collect when the vessel is navigating so if we know that the boat is 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 navigating then only we we collect and we also do collection bursts so we don't collect the whole time we collect uh just in little bursts and so even though we are not going to use a full sequence of things yet uh we are planning for in the future there's probably going to be more sequential type of models that that we want to cater uh, but, and then we'll have that data sets there um, that gets processed uh, in-house uh, with, with a bunch of, um, of, and I'm not the one who, who did this, so you should, you should probably uh, talk to my colleague about this because um, he's a bit more involved in that. But what, what happens is that we just run scripts that process the data converts the the data into the formats that we need for the pre-labeling. Does the pre-labeling guesses? So, like I mentioned, we we try to uh, pre-label the data using AIs quite a bit, uh, and and then get it to a point where we actually um, have some software that we could uh, get thir- thir- or to get other guys like interns or, or maybe students to to label. And so we're also uh, that also requires quite an effort to figure out. Okay, what labeling services do you use? Uh, we've looked at Labelbox. We've used uh, we've used Mechanical Turk. We've used uh, what's it called um, Turn Eight? I think it was called. Now no, they're called Crab Flower, I think. Uh, and so uh, Scale AI seems to be one of the newer ones with a lot of the functionality where you can actually translate between 3D space and 2D space. Uh, but a lot of their their features that would be interesting for us are still kind of in beta uh so we're still waiting on that and so because nothing really checked the the boxes uh we we've we've been building small a lot of small pieces that, that were custom to our to our needs um and so yeah we're 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 still we're still figuring it out in a sense but we're we're we've got a clear idea of 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 how this should fit together um and we've already got a few models that we have deployed. Let's say, so if a client wants to see how good our radar detector is, we, we have a model that you can you can access online. You just put a, an image in it, and it'll return a bounding box, and you can do your own validation and and quality assessment on it.
0: Yeah. And what would you say are the kind of the biggest challenges there in terms of that that whole process? Um, and I guess like yeah, the barriers that are preventing you from reaching like that dream of the kind of the fully automated version of that aside from you having to like drive to the boat and pick up the hard drive.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't want to be facetious. Um, if I use that word correctly? But I, it, it's, it literally is the unknown unknowns. It's like the things that you don't account for. Um, and I think that that occupies, uh, time, which never gets scheduled. Uh, because how do you schedule that? <laughs> it's like, uh, um, and so, what ends up happening is, is like uh, you you get uh, you know you've got to deal with, with things that come up. And um, I think I think the, well, actually, something that is is more addressable would be like um, our models are, are generally um, not off the shelf. Uh, we, we tweak our models, and that makes it really hard because all of the pipelines that you see for deployment are generally designed for a specific model in mind and i think that's where torch serve is a bit nicer they've got these um uh you can you, i think you can customize that uh, a little bit uh, but then again you know you've got you got to use uh you know to assess the the requirements the hardware requirements uh you know that's that's also going to be a point right now we just overkill we're just like and i think it's okay so cuz generally the clients for them it's it's in proportion to a lot of the different things it's it's not a concern and they can afford like a nice gpu so we just mm-hmm. throw in a good gpu make sure that everything works well uh, but i think at some point once we mature we'd want to also be more considerate of, of the hardware requirements things like that um, yeah but actually it's a it's a problem that i think um might also be lack of of of, of of staff um i mean we're looking to hire right now uh deep learning guys uh you know and uh, i think i think to find someone who can do deep learning uh for us you know as a startup uh, i know they can get really good salaries at other places uh, well, so but we offer an opportunity to kind of do things um at the at the edge right to be part of the team be part of the startup be and, and i think that that's it, really exciting so we're we're actively looking for people to help us in that sense, and 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 that should also help us address some of the unknown unknowns that we're going to come across. Um, yeah, I think the experimentation time that's that's huge. Uh, you know, one B is awesome because you can just run different uh, sweeps of different parameters, which is huge. Uh, I think in figuring out a lot of the model performance comes from parameter tuning. You know. Um, and that's also time consuming like not only do you have to figure out the the model and which data works well you also have to figure out how what parameters it is right i think i think it's just a lot of work um you know prototypes are really easy you know you just have a small data set you run it on your laptop and you get it out but it's a lot of work if you're doing this um at production scale right because you have to you have to do a lot of validation a lot of checking yeah'
0: you know. that i mean maybe that goes to like the the pace at which you can iterate as well and like the systems you have to support a faster pace. Um, like if you could optimize that, that would help you.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, like I would definitely want to try transformers with everything. Right. Um, okay. uh, I think, uh, it's got a hype right now. And, um, and from what I understand, um, is that transformers tend to be really performant because, because of reasons, um, but uh, but it's also very sensitive to tuning, uh, so it's it's risky. LSTMs work really nice uh, for a lot of these things. Um, so, like like we would definitely do a transformers uh, for some of the problems if uh, if 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 it wasn't too risky. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, and and the risk only gets mitigated by trying it. Like you just need to do it and try it and see if it works. Uh, and so yeah, uh, so we're resource constrained in that sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I guess you need yeah, resources and time and and all of this to be able to like just play around with things and experiment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wish you could outsource that. Uh you probably could. But the thing is you also want to have that skill in house, right? Um you you want to you want to when you do these kind of things, you want the people to be to be aware of the problem yeah. that they're solving uh in a very um intimate way, I would say. Yeah.
0: Right. it's not just you can just i don't know release a bunch of data or whatever on kaggle and like have a competition to see Uh, we
1: thought about that that would be a great way to i think do skill acquisition um you know like you know just throw it out there some some people are going to come up with some really nice ways to solve this problem and those people deserve a job
0: for sure right Uh, (laughs) yeah i uh, how how do you feel about like the tooling maturity? And maybe you're not the person necessarily to to ask specifically about this. But do you, yeah, do, do you feel like we're at a place where a lot of this stuff is mature and kind of robust in a way? Or yeah, other things yeah. That...
1: Um, so I kind of uh, stopped doing so much deep learning in the past year. Uh, I, I follow up on it, but when I got started, I, I played a lot with TensorFlow. Uh, and like you would work with TensorFlow and one year later that 2.0 and it was completely different. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they built backward support for a lot of the models. Cause at that time, by the time 2.0 released, everyone had built such a foundation and so many models were developed on 1.0 that, uh, they had to kind of really, uh, make it easy for you to still have the 1.0 features. Um, so I think it's growing really, really fast. It's crazy, but I think we're settling now. Um, I, I, I personally, for my side experiments, I use Kiros uh, just because I don't have time. It's just a lot easier. Um, and so I find that if you can put it at such a high level where you're just specifying layers, then, you know, there's some kind of, uh, it's it's kind of stabilizing and, and coalescing into some, some standard formats. Um, But there's so much out there nowadays, everyone's doing their own kind of tensor operations and, and have their own formats. And, and you're coming up now with things called Onyx, uh, like, like these cross platform solutions. And, uh, and so I think uh, you're starting to see a little bit more maturity there. Uh so things are coalescing now. I think it was kind of like an explosion and a whole bunch of different things were developed and like you would you would use a language which had the model. Like at least that was me. Like like I would be like, okay, if this if this is implemented in, in you know, PyTorch or something, I'll, I'll clone that repo, play around with it, see see how that works. Um because it, you know, you don't want to re implement that in a different language. Uh but now but now it's getting so uh, a little bit more straightforward, um, I think um yeah yeah well, how do you feel about that uh, uh the maturity of, of, of the language i mean
0: i think um i feel like in the the kind of the model development space and iterating over that like things are yeah seem a little bit more more stable and mature and now we have pytorch and 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 all of these kinds of things and and um uh, as well as kind of lower level um, solutions and, and jacks is out there and all of these kinds of things, but the like the bigger picture I feel is is definitely a bit more wild, wild west, um, and um, there's definitely a lot more kind of consolidation um, that that needs to happen there, or or just better abstractions need need to be created. And obviously, it's difficult because. We're kind of simultaneously trying to create the abstractions while we figure out like the problem space at the same time. So obviously, it's going to continue to change for a few years.
1: Yeah, I think um, that's a really good way of putting it, that. That that uh, we're 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 approaching the problem space. We're still trying while well, we're trying to create the abstractions, and so that's actually a recipe for a disaster. A bit, you know. I think.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, but are you are you mainly kind of? Uh, Python based um, stuff or do you go lower level um, yeah uh,
1: yeah I think um, well for deep learning definitely um, Python I you know I don't think uh, I, I think I th- is it true that uh, uh, torch uh, Pytorch is dropping support for for other languages now I think I don't know I, I don't know if that's probably not true uh, but but I think a lot of people aren't even thinking about uh, all the other ways to uh, to do it. And they're just doing it in, in Python, especially now, because a lot of the students that, you know, they come into school for AI. Uh, and so the language that they get introduced to is Python. Uh, and so by the time they graduate, Python is, is their, is their language and how they've learned things. And so I think, uh, I think the, that C++ skills, uh, might, might be lacking because, and, and, and being, be more reserved for performance, um, Right. Where like if you wanted to create the binaries that are called by, you know, these higher level languages, uh, you'd write it in C++ or I think Rust is now becoming the more popular one. Um, so, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think Python is is definitely deep learning. But then when you're coming to like uh, a lot of the other problems that we're facing, like, um, you know, you, you want to reduce latency. So you need to send camera footage uh, and when you're controlling a vessel, or you, you want to modify it, you don't want to have that delay. Mm-hmm. Um, and So we're looking at uh, you know frameworks like GStreamer, for example. GStreamer is a really efficient framework uh, for for media data, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and things like that. So so we do have a few different languages uh, uh, that are more catered to the performance. But uh, I think you'd be looking at CUDA uh, if you really want to get down to the crux of, of performance and might be more interesting in the hardware sense so if you're trying to reduce cost on your hardware uh, you want to kind of uh, exceed the performance of, of your model um, but at the stage we're at I think uh, with with NVIDIA uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to, to explore some of their embedded uh, or deployment solutions they have they have like uh, NVIDIA AGX which a uh, Jetson AGX which is kind of like um like a Raspberry Pi, but for 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 with with the GPU, uh, and mm-hmm. they're and what's nice about it is that they have a lot of the uh, accelerations like Tensor RT already uh, kind of built for it, and so it makes it very accessible for you to run your models using these ex- hardware accelerations. But outside of that, I don't think we really custom do anything. We just use what's what's somewhat easily available. Again, yep. we're 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 an ambitious startup doing way too much. Uh, and looking for for people to help, definitely. Simple Um, solutions. But we have to be smart about where we put our efforts.
0: Yeah, I thought maybe you were going to say something about, I don't know, Julia or something, but yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. Like, stick with what's reliable and has a big ecosystem as well.
1: Yeah, um, I I personally don't have much experience with with Julia. Um, I read a few blog posts, I think, about it. But uh, do you recommend Julia for, for these things?
0: I've only dabbled a little bit, but I mean... People who are working in the Julia space seem super enthusiastic about it, but yeah. who knows? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of kind of just like, so you've got a, a, a product or a service or, or something which is out in the world and, and is interacting with uh, people and things that can crash into each other. Like, I'm curious how you think about like, Risk and danger, and like all of yeah. these kind of things, like you know, you can give people the wrong information, or yeah, yeah. Um, maybe there's also—I'm sure there's some kind of legal framework in which you have to operate as well. Like, yeah, you know, right. balance all of these things.
1: Oh yeah, this—it's a—it's complete dance. I mean, obviously, you can only sail autonomously if—if if you're allowed to sail autonomously, and it's also um, safety is a, is an issue. If you crash your boat, it's not a good thing. Um, and so we have these kind of discussions about, you know, um, like uh, how, how do we, you know, how do we make sure that uh, we can iterate fast and maintain a safe working environment? And um, I, these are challenges we have to address. These are things that uh, um, it's really nice to iterate quickly, but when things can go really terribly wrong, that's not a good idea. And so we're practical. We, we try to use the sim. We do a lot of the testing in our simulator. So the simulator we have uh, actually has motion models and, and physics um, programmed in, uh, and so a lot of that, like kind of stupidity testing, can be done in the sim. Uh, and then, of course, we have uh, captains that literally hold the steer and override procedures that uh, they can they can just take control if they ever feel the need that that something is is not right, and, and all that that needs to be in place. Um, but then I think also from a moral standpoint, uh, I, I was arguing that you kind of have to solve autonomy um, to reduce the amount of, uh, of, of crashes, because if we can like offload how many people are driving in those trucks uh, that have crazy hours uh, on this more efficient mode of transportation uh, by making it more frictionless and, and better uh, improving the logistics on it, then essentially, you are saving lives, um, so you know you can. Uh, you got you got to see the good side of it too. Like like I said, I feel like a lot of people tend to overweigh the pessimistic point of view and tend to, to be wrong because they bias towards that direction. So they're like, "Oh yeah, what if uh, a whale?" I've literally had this question: "What what if a whale breaches on your boat and something like that and, and destroys things and people?" Uh, you get the you get all you can. There's so many things you can think up that can go wrong. But then you also have to be fair and think of all of the things that can go right. Uh, and um, and I think that, that technology has, has only made it so that we can sustain such a big population on this planet and has only done good things. Uh, of course, you know, you have the nuclear bomb and all these bad things. But, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I could argue um, a, a positive use case on all the technologies we have. You know, mm. uh, I think people take that for granted. I really think people take it. Once the technology is part of your everyday life, you tend to forget how things used to be. your
0: sure baseline. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and so I, we're living like kings on, in this time and age because of uh, because of technology.
0: Yeah. Is there? Um, uh... I'm trying to think of like what the equivalent would be. I guess it's maybe not the same. Like, is there a maritime equivalent of the trolley problem in in your world? Like...
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, the trolley problem could be like applied to the maritime domain. Um, yeah, um...
0: It, you don't have as much. It's it's less or it's rarer that you have so many like boats all in the same place.
1: Uh well no you, you should see some videos uh, I think every five years four years Amsterdam um, they've got these boat events and there's it's just ridiculous sure. okay um, yeah. yeah yeah so in fact I think the next one's in four years or three years and we wanted to sign up uh just to, because we're like okay at that time we're gonna sail this this right. crazy situation and our software is gonna be is gonna be able to do it. Um, but uh yeah, so I think um Charlie problem is like a philosophical problem uh, I think the way we the way i, I ration it or reason it is uh been, the way I reason it is that that what we're doing is essentially a more sophisticated form of like a conveyor belt right um you know in 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 the factory you've got uh, conveyor belts that are transporting one thing to another um and so what we're doing is, is instead of having that very simple environment with that just you push a belt over and there's not much noise in that situation, we're pushing a, a, a you know a box or a vehicle across the water. And and so what that what happens is that your perception of your position is a little bit more noisy. Your control uh, has to be more sophisticated, but in principle it's not any different. Uh, and so. Uh, so that's gonna that that's how i see it when you're talking about the tro- trolley problem you're really trying to say like okay uh uh you know it's like is it better to it, it's just should the robot decide whether to destroy uh this uh you know b- five bad people versus one good person or things like that um and uh, i'm sure that that there's going to be a lot of interesting like uh discussions in that that space once once the maturity of this technology is at that point. But to, to be frank with you, I don't even think uh, AI as it is right now has the ability to conceive of ideas, right? Like uh, you need to prompt GPT-3. I mean, it's great, all of the stuff that comes out of it, but the human still prompts it. And until uh, so you have some kind of like self-evolving, uh, self-prompting kind of system, which might happen soon or not. I, I don't think that those problems apply. It's, it's a mechanical problem until like, there's this level of choice uh, that a, a machine can make. Uh, so, so let's address that once once that's actually the case.
0: Yeah. Um, so we usually end with a couple of kind of quick quicker questions. Um, you can take it in kind of whatever direction you want. Um, so the first one would be: What would be a kind of a, a quick win that someone can add to their systems to make putting models out in production more robust?
1: Yeah, I wanna. Yeah, so I think I think being very clear about your metrics, uh, which the software is doing really well, um, like, yeah, it's it's hard because the the stuff that really leads to the improvement is is like uh, trying to be really good about your assumptions, right? Um, yeah, so 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 try to try to make sure that. Uh, that, it, that your assumptions are really clear or that you're really clear about how, how this works. Um, for example, like if, if you were to, like we're collecting radar data in a, in a single area and then we're, we're trying to think of, okay, well, how how diverse does this data set get to, get to be? Um, and so one way to assess that is to have a data set of, like it's not just reserving a section of your data uh, and then using that as your test set, but literally going the extra mile and saying, how about we put in a data set of just a completely different place, right? Uh, and so it's not just following the rule, you know, 20% is testing, is um, like like to, to actually rationalize what does it mean to test and to, to check its, um, its uh, um, you know, its uh, adaptability to different situations. But other than that, I can't really give you that that much of an insight in terms of the more practical uh, technologies. I'm not really the one uh, doing that.
0: Yeah. And what would you you've at least spoken a little bit about this earlier? like what would be kind of one part of putting putting models in, into production um, that you feel like needs to be given more attention by toolmakers in the space? Like what's the thing you're missing?
1: Um, I, th- I think most people would always uh, kind of directly go towards uh, some form of automation, you know, like let's automate the procedure more. Right. Um, but I, I, I don't know if, if that's always going to be good because like you said, we're still trying to solve this the problem space. Um, so uh, I, th- I think, I think this level of, of improvement uh, might be like that over engineering maybe. Um, yeah, so <laughs> that's not really an answer. Um, uh,
0: I, th- well, I, think, I guess what you're saying, I yeah. guess what you're saying is like that, the uh, we don't currently have like good tools to deal with this stuff. And so we, that's what we need.
1: Yeah. 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 So let's say, um, like there's this like you all like transformer type of, uh, vision. I think everyone's just adapting transformers to everything. And if that's the case, then you know maybe maybe building a tool that lets you uh, try a type of model like that over a different you know if it if it really is that generalizable uh, you know then the problem becomes more of a tuning thing and making that easy right mm-hmm. so maybe there's a whole uh, deployment uh, solution that could just specialize on uh, one one very generic type of model. Uh, yeah, but uh, other than that, I, I don't think uh, I got a good answer for you.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much for for coming on. Like, it was super interesting. Um, we definitely don't don't speak to too many people who are like deploying things out in the world so much. Um, it's often, often a lot more software based. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, interesting. yeah,
1: um, yeah. So this is our first year really deploying things. Um, uh, I can probably speak to non-deep learning kind of, uh, solutions that, and there's a lot of rest API type of, uh, you know, solutions. And that's great. That's awesome. It's, it's very simple. Um, uh, you know, if you wanted to be, if you're, if you're using images, gRPC, but you know, it's, it's really nice to have something that is being served online, uh, and to, to let people use it. You know. Yeah. It gives a lot of validation at least if you're, So I I think uh, the space we're addressing is also a little bit more esoteric in the sense that it's hardware. It's really like also stuff that has to work on the boats. I think a lot of these solutions right now um, are very
0: accessible for online applications. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people. And of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast.zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time.